0: So as we're making our way through Mark chapter 2, talking about conflict and looking at all the conflict Jesus had when he was on this earth, uh, today we get to this idea of what do we do when the conflict is about Jesus himself. And so before we pray, uh, I want to read the scripture out of Mark chapter 2, so cactus and venue and... Uh, Mountain Valley, as well as our chapel. All of us, why don't we stand, and I'm going to read from Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, just a few verses, and dial into the conflict going on here uh, that's even about Jesus himself. Follow along as I read. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples… Do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from him, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst in the skins... And when the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Before you're seated, why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, this is a passage that I think a lot of Christians have trouble explaining uh, exactly what Jesus means by these analogies of a wedding feast and these two-word pictures of a garment and wineskins. But Lord, we're going to understand this today, rightly, in its context, what you're saying to us. And even what we can do when the conflict is about Jesus himself. So God, I pray that you might be honored and glorified in this time. Uh, Make us glad, Lord, as we always are, that we met together here to worship you and spend time in your word. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, You may be seated. So let's jump right to the main point this morning. We have a lot to cover in a shorter than uh, usual period of time. And so here it is, you can look up here on your screens, and that is that we need to note today that there's going to be times in life that we have conflict over something as good and right as Jesus. I mean, up to this point in our series, we've been looking at the fact that we have conflict over lots of different things in our life, but we haven't yet really honored the fact that sometimes in life, especially for those of us who are Christians, uh, we're going to have conflict over something as wonderful and life-changing as good and good as Jesus himself. And so let's reference the story before us today in Mark 2, and you'll see what I mean. If you've been tracking with us through this chapter at all, you know that it's all about conflict. Uh, Jesus up to this point in this chapter, he's in northern Galilee in the town of Capernaum, has had two significant conflicts with the religious leaders of his day. He had one at Peter's home when he was healing and, and teaching, and then the other one that we noted last week in downtown Capernaum as he called Matthew the tax collector to be a follower of himself. And so if you're reading along in Mark chapter 2, you begin to think at this point, well, surely there's going to be a lull in the storm soon. I mean, you can only have so much conflict in life, and yet it's not over yet, not at all. Because what happens next is that John the Baptist followers join ranks with the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, and have conflict with Jesus. And this time, it's not about healing on the Sabbath or calling some undesirable into the kingdom like Matthew, no. This time, it's about the practices that Jesus' disciples omit, practices that they don't do that everybody and their brother in first century Palestine thinks that they should do. And so look again at how this story begins in verse 18. You'll see what I mean. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, most of us here today, even if you're not very spiritual or religious, know what fasting is. Whether you do it for health reasons or do it for spiritual reasons, fasting is simply when you go without something, usually food, for a period of time for a specific purpose or a reason. And what you need to know is that in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, people fasted, especially very spiritual or religious people, on a regular basis. In the Old Testament, fasting was done to commemorate holy days or to remember past acts of God or to lament certain national catastrophes. It was even used to repent of sins, to express piety and devotion to God. You would withhold food from the body to sharpen your soul to God. that was fasting. And we know from historical records at the time of Jesus that a good Pharisee, now get this, would fast every Monday and Thursday twice a week in addition to all the various Old Testament fasts. And we also know that John the Baptist's disciples were fasting to demonstrate their spiritual fortitude as they were waiting for the Messiah to come as a sign of repentance and readying themselves for God. In short, spiritual and religious people fasted in Jesus' day in order to honor God as well as his actions in history to show their devotion to him. It was part and parcel of what it meant to be a follower of God. so I like how one Bible expert puts it commenting on this passage. He says, and I quote, fasting had become in Jesus' day a prerequisite of spiritual commitment, a sacrificial act of piety. And so maybe now you can see why John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisee's disciples were all bent out of shape that Jesus and his disciples were not fasting like he did. In fact, they didn't or like they did. In fact, he didn't fast, they didn't fast at all, and this bothered him. Uh, to kind of put it in perspective today, it'd be kind of like if you met a Christian today and you found out that they didn't pray very often or didn't go to church or didn't give any money or didn't serve on a regular basis, kind of all the things that we do to show our devotion to God, you might not say, "Well, I don't think they're a Christian," but you would at the very least wonder why. They're not doing all of those things. Fasting, back then in Jesus' day, was a very similar discipline. And Jesus' disciples weren't doing it, and it wasn't right. And it was creating conflict. And so it's fascinating how Jesus responds to this. What does he do? He says, oh my gosh, I forgot about fasting. How silly of me. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, guys, for reminding me of this amazing discipline. Guys, we need to give up dinner tonight and get with the fasting program. He doesn't say that. Not at all. In fact, look again at verses 19 and 20 at what he says. This is what confuses a lot of Christians. He says, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Fascinating. Jesus, He does this a lot, uh, answers their question with a counter question. Did you pick up on that? And it's a lead-in question. It's a baiting question. And He basically says in this analogy here, wouldn't it be just totally nuts if you went to a wedding complete with a lot of food and drink and people were fasting and not eating? Wouldn't that be kind of out of place? Because the whole point of a wedding is that you joyously celebrate the union taking place, and it's not a time for fasting, but a time for feasting. And that's really what Jesus is saying here. And the point that he is making is subtle, but I don't think it was lost on them. He's saying in the Old Testament, everybody was waiting for the Messiah to come, for the bridegroom to show up. So fasting was commonplace. It was good. It was right. It was an appropriate expression of what it means to wait on God and show your devotion to Him, to grieve over sin and to long for salvation to come to this world. But now, Jesus is implying, the giver of the salvation is here. The bridegroom is on the scene, and it's not a time to fast, but a time for joy and celebration and feasting, which, by the way, He just did with Matthew and all of his friends who, if you remember, were were sinners and tax collectors as well. This is why we don't fast, Jesus says. I'm here. It's time for joy. It's time for celebration. And then he even adds, so that they understand this, that there will come a time when Jesus would be physically gone. I think this is referencing his death and burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension back into heaven. And he says, during that time, my followers are going to pick up fasting again especially when they feel distant from me, even though I'm always with them. They're going to pick up fasting again as a discipline to sharpen the soul to God till I come a second time. Which, by the way, is why Christians still fast today as one of the spiritual disciplines to help us get in touch regularly with God. Jesus was referencing that. And then to show the incredible radical nature of this new and complete salvation, Jesus uses two Parables here, really, kind of word pictures. Look again at verses 21 and 22. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. No, new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, again, this parables confuse a lot of Christians. You ask the average Christian, what does Jesus mean by this? They'll give you that infamous deer-in-the-headlights look. They really won't understand. But it's really not complicated, guys, in the context here. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that the new has come in Jesus, and it's markedly different from the old. Grace is now here in Jesus in a form that it was not before. Salvation is now offered by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ and trying to combine it with the old, like works of the law. But The book of Romans and Galatians wanted to spell this out in plain language. Trying to combine it with something old, like works of the law, is kind of trying like to put new cloth on an old garment. You sew it in and then when you wash it, the new cloth is going to shrink and it's going to rip the old garment. Or it's kind of like putting new wine, which still is fermenting, In an old wineskin, you put it in there, and put the cap on, it's still going to ferment and it's going to explode, the old wineskin. Jesus is now here, he's saying. God, in a way never before seen in the history of the world, the age of grace is upon you. The new has come and the old has passed away. And it's a time for joy and celebration. This is the answer that Jesus gives to the question and the frustration that these two groups had with Jesus and his followers not fasting. And here's the deal, guys. you got to believe that Jesus, as he was giving this answer to the critical disciples of John and and, and the Pharisees, that his current followers, and there were five of them early on here in Mark, Peter, John, Andrew, James, and Matthew, you got to believe they were saying, yeah, you give it to him, Jesus. I mean, it's a time for fasting and it's a time for feasting. We're with you. We're following you right now. And yet we have every indication, and here's what you need to know, that John's disciples and the Pharisees, at least at this point, by and large didn't buy it. They didn't get it. In fact, John the Baptist, a few chapters later, is gonna be put in prison, and he sends word to Jesus saying, Are are you really the one? (laughs) I just got to be sure. And then, halfway through the book of Acts, which will be like years later, we still find John the Baptist's disciples following John the Baptist's ways, then fully switched allegiance to Jesus. We know that the vast majority of the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders didn't buy this answer. They didn't believe Jesus and what he said here. A few of them did, like Nicodemus maybe and a few others, but the vast majority of them didn't. Here's what you need to see. They still had conflict, ongoing conflict, and the conflict is all about Jesus, who he was, what he said, and our his followers acted, or in this case, didn't act. And so as we've been asking all along in this series in Mark chapter 2, what does this mean for you and I today? I mean, it's a good historical lesson. Now you guys understand the passage better and understand what's happening here. But let's be honest, most of us don't have a bunch of people running around today bugging us about fasting, right? But we're not usually judged by others on, on that level as Jesus was here. So aside from learning about the need to still fast today, what does this mean for you and I and our conflict here in the 20th century living in Phoenix uh, today? And this brings us right back to our main point. Uh, Namely, here's what I would submit to you. There is still a lot of conflict over the person and work of Jesus in our culture today. There is. Human nature never changes. Times don't usually change. And certainly the person and work of Jesus never changes. And so it would go without saying that the conflict that we see here in Mark chapter 2 is still going on in your life and my life today, especially as we follow Jesus and lay our lives down before him in a world that's not always friendly to the things of faith. You're saying, how? Three ways, if you want to follow me on your outline here, look up here on the screen. Three ways that I find people today will have conflict with you Uh, over this good news that they don't see as quite as good news. Uh, Here's the first way is that people are going to have conflict over Jesus' claims and his actions. As you follow Jesus and as you represent his claims on a fallen world and his actions, I'm telling you, spiritual sparks are going to fly. People are going to have conflict with you. Why? I've been… Look at this stuff for years, and it's just so clear to me why a fallen world that hasn't come home to Jesus yet, many of them, when they first hear Jesus' claims, don't usually right away say, oh my gosh, I never knew that, how can I believe? Because his claims are are really radical, and they're in people's face. Think of three claims that Jesus made that really represent the core of the gospel. The first claim Jesus made was, you can look up here on the screen, is the Son of God claim. This is found in in John 5, verses 21 to 23. And though many of you say, oh, no, it's wonderful. He's the Son of God, and he's the unique Son of God. Have you ever read how he made that claim? Uh, Listen to just the words of John 5, 21 and 23. Jesus himself says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him." (laughs) When Jesus first spoke these words and the the Pharisees were there, about three chapters later in John chapter 8, they're eventually going to pick up stones, as we noticed last week, in order to kill Him, (laughs) because they're going, He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to have a unique status before God. He says we're to honor him. He holds all judgment. John would begin his gospel with clear language, though poetic, saying it this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, Jesus claimed to be God come in the flesh, a part of a trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He claimed to be God incarnate, and it's obviously a unique claim. Uh, But going even further here, Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he makes what I call the only pathway claim. And this one really gets in people's faces. Uh, Look at how, listen how Jesus would say this uh, to Martha in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that's what he says. And then in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, obviously implying faith in him. You know, I love it. I've heard now for 30-some-odd years when I talk to people about Jesus' only pathway claim, they say to me, you Christians are so narrow. You know, you're, you're, you're so closed-minded saying Jesus is the only way. And I always think to myself when people say that, well, you do understand we're not the ones who made that up. We're not the ones who who, who originated that. Jesus is the one who originated that. He's the one who made those only pathway claims, and here's what you know, he made them all the time. He's painstakingly clear that as the unique son of God, as the one who came to earth to offer salvation to all humankind, he is the way to heaven through faith and trust in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then, as if all of this were not enough, he makes a radical faith call claim. Uh, Listen to Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, Christians love those words. We, we, we do. We go, oh, isn't that just wonderful? But, but think about it. If you're like, uh, you know, living a rebellious, self-sufficient life in which you don't want God to get in the way, and all of a sudden Jesus comes along and says, if anyone will come after me, take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me, lose your life and all your claims on your life for my sake, that's not quite music to some people's ears. Folks, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Christianity. There is no other. It's a radical claim about who he is, an exclusive pathway on how to get to God in heaven, and a radical call for all of humanity to come home and stop living self-obsessed lives and start living God-obsessed lives. And what you simply need to know, and this brings us back to the main point, is that for the last 2,000 years, whenever this message of Jesus has hit a secular culture, and it has like all the time, spiritual sparks have flown and conflict has ensued. I mean, it scandalized the Greco-Roman world that Jesus was brought or was incarnated into. I mean, it scandalized them. For three centuries, Christians were so persecuted, they didn't have church buildings, they weren't doing Compelled by Grace campaigns and building wonderful children's ministry centers. They were hiding out in catacombs for their very lives because the Greco-Roman world was so threatened by this message. And then Constantine came along. Some of you remember him from your history books. And he not only legalized Christianity, but he made it the state religion. And so all through the Middle Ages, Christianity grew and spread. And it became an affront to Islam and to Hinduism and Buddhism basically claiming, again, that only pathway claim, and it made its mark in that way. And then a few hundred years ago, we had the rise of the Enlightenment, which has basically formed our Western world that we live in now. And the message of Jesus, once again, hit that very secular movement. And at very best, it became a countercheck. And at the very most, it challenged Many of the findings of the Enlightenment, like Freudian psychoanalytic theory, or David Hume's naturalism, or even evolution, or William James's pragmatism, and all through the centuries, the claims and works of Jesus, which has been good news to us, now don't miss this, is bad news to those who are not following Him. I mean, as Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. And and again, we try to soft pedal this today and say, well, you know, let's not be so hard. We're following a Savior who said all of these things. And I'm not saying that we need to go fight everybody, but there are times where you're just going to be living your wonderful Christian life, doing what you know to do just to be as faithful and obedient as you can. And when people understand what's going on, that you're buying into this unique Son of God claim, the only pathway claim, and a radical faith call claim, they're going to go I don't get it. And especially in our tolerance-based, multicultural, increasingly secular society today, it really gets in their face. Uh, Franklin Graham is Billy Graham's son, and, and, and he wrote a book a few years ago called The Name, The Name, obviously referring to the name of Jesus. And, and he tells in this book the stories of how when he's interviewed on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or for a newspaper that you know, as long as he mentions God, and faith, and things like that, everything is copacetic. But the second he mentions the name of Jesus, he says the whole conversation changes. And there are many interviewers that just want to get out of it as fast as they can. Because as you and I know, as long as you talk liberally about God or faith, you're on good ground in our culture today. The second you mention Jesus, it's a game changer. It's a conversation changer. Why? because of the things that he said and the things that he did. We're going to put this together in just a minute here concerning what our response should be to all this. But for now, simply note that there are many today and down through the ages that simply have problems with the claims and actions of Jesus. And it's going to create conflict in your life as a result. As you're chewing on that, notice with me a second way that people have conflict with you at times because of Jesus. Now we're going to switch gears here, but this is just as relevant, and that's that they're going to have conflict over the changes in your life as a result of you following Jesus. Now this is different from simply having conflict over who Jesus is and what he has said. This is conflict over your life specifically and the changes that have come in your life because you're now a follower. I want to be careful. I don't want to be too hard here on some of us. But do we all understand, at least give me a head nod here, that when you become a follower of Jesus, you're supposed to change? Give me a head nod that you all understand that. And I know that Christians change at different paces and in different ways. But the Bible is pretty clear that with words like repentance and transformation, that when you become a follower of Jesus, things change. How so? I made a list this week. Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, your lifestyle is now different. You have an upgraded morality, the things that you do and that you don't do. Your relationships are now different, how you parent, how you approach your spouse in marriage, uh, how you have friends, the things that you prioritize. The way you handle yourself at work is now different. You don't lie to cover up. You don't fudge on expense reports. You don't take office supplies for personal use, do we? I I, I mean, even your language is now different. And I'm not just talking about cursing and swearing, but you don't backbite, you don't gossip about others like our world does. And even your priorities are now different. You prioritize church and serving with your gifts and talents. You spend money in a different way, prioritizing generosity. You even use your vacation time for a mission trip. In short, you have a whole new set of ways of how you act and behave, not with a holier than thou mindset, hopefully. You're humble about it, but you know that Christ has redeemed you, and you know He bought you with a price. And so you're, the least you can do is lay your life down before Him and say, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. And He does. And yet, here's what you need to see, just these simple behavioral relational lifestyle changes are gonna threaten some people around you. It's gonna cause a little bit of guilt at times and they're gonna not like it and it's gonna create conflict. I gotta tell you guys, I experienced this literally the day after I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was in high school, I was 17 years old and I had, a, I had a radical coming to Christ, you know, where I was Paul on the road to Damascus, and then I did a 180, and now I'm following him. And, you know, before that, in high school, I'm not going to bore you with the gory details, but I did a lot of what high school students in the Midwest who don't know Jesus do. And, and that's that I drank too much and partied a lot and did all the things that you shouldn't do. And I'll never forget the day after I accepted Christ, I was so on fire that I was telling all my friends about it, and I told my best friend that I had accepted Christ. And you knew I was considering it. And essentially, he said this to me, he says, let me get this straight, you're not going to party with us anymore, you're not going to chase girls with us anymore. And I said, yeah, essentially you could assume that. He said goodbye. And my best friend didn't want anything more to do with me anymore. Some of you might say, well, he wasn't really a good friend. Well, I'll grant you that, but he was the best friend I had up to that point in life. <laughs> And when I was in college, I went to visit him at the other college and tried to connect with him, nothing. I even visited him when his family moved uh, to another state and tried to connect with him, nothing. And Eventually after college, we just completely lost ties. And it was my first lesson in realizing that, you know, the onlooking world, even though I think I'm getting more righteous and better and more loving and faithful and all that, the onlooking world didn't stand up and applaud. They were kind of threatened some of that stuff. Many of you have experienced this in your life. If you and I were having a Starbucks coffee today or wherever you go for coffee, you would tell me various and personal stories on how you've experienced that. So people are going to have conflict with us simply just over who Jesus is. They're going to have conflict with us over the changes in our lives as a result. And then there's a third category, and with this we're going to put it all together. But this is a category worth noting that many Christians don't get, and that is that they're also going to have conflict over your fallen following of Jesus. Now, now, now what do I mean by that? When you became a Christian, hopefully you are one here today. If you haven't, we'd love to talk to you about that. When you became a Christian, um, the Bible says that you now are engaged in a battle every day between what? The flesh and the spirit. Did you guys go to Sunday school? The, the flesh and the spirit. Good. And, and, and that's a daily battle that you have. And some days you win and some days you lose. That's what the Bible makes really clear. And so at best, when we're firing on all eight cylinders with the Lord, we're still got a lot of flesh mixed in with it. But think about it with me, the flesh wouldn't be mixed into it. You wouldn't even have this battle if you were not a Christian, right? And there are some times where we're doing the best we can to follow Jesus and yet we have this flesh, and it gets in the way, and it's going to cause conflict. But I would submit to you that that conflict is there, even though it's because of the flesh, because you're a Christian, and because you're following Jesus. Let me tell you a story that might help bring this all together, and and this is actually an amazing story it's very endearing to me. My my wife, Kim, uh, became a Christian in the late 1970s. It was a radical conversion again to Christ. We were both in the same small town, Chagrin Falls, Ohio, which is smaller than our church, uh, the town that I I was born and raised in. And Kim, uh, the Jika family, is very very well known in this town, five kids, a large family. And Tommy, the oldest one, uh, through a, a bunch of experiences, accepted Christ back in the mid to late 1970s, and he came home. And he led John to Christ and Joe to Christ and Kathy to Christ and eventually Kim, the youngest, to Christ. So within a matter of like one year, all five kids accepted Christ. And this was back in the days, some of you remember this, of the born-again Christian movement. Jimmy Carter came out and said he was a born-again Christian. And so, man, these kids were like fired up just saying, we are now born again in Jesus Christ. And the parents were not all that excited about this. I mean, it was just really hard on my in-laws because they, they, they just didn't get it, and all of a sudden their kids got really religious and really spiritual. And, and what added a lot of fuel to all of this, and some of you remember these days, is that that was right during the rise of the moral majority, and Ronald Reagan coming around the scene, and, and evangelical Christianity starting to get very political. And so the boys especially, Kim was just kind of caught up in this, got very political, and, and, and they got if you will, part of the religious right. And they started to get very activist in that. Kim's dad was a foreman in the union. (laughs) He was a card-carrying democrat and very proud of it. And Kim would tell me stories of, man, dinner conversations that were really heated, where the boys would come home and because of their religious faith and because of their faith in Christ, they'd say, you know what? Unions are corrupt, dad. I mean, I can't believe that you're a Democrat and a union guy, you know, you need to vote like this. And, oh my gosh, Kim's dad would just lose it, you know, and he'd say, it was unions that put food on this table. How dare you get down, oh, it's just a mess. And they just go at it. Can you picture it? And what's been amazing for me to watch over the years is that as the boys, who are now men, have grown Kim's brothers. They're godly men in their respective communities, their elders in their church, they're wise, they're good. They've discerned over time, they've grown, that it's probably not best to pick a fight with their dad over the union, and that though they might have strong political opinions, now don't miss this, those political opinions are an outpouring of their faith in Jesus, sometimes right, and I would even argue with them sometimes wrong, they're not the faith itself. And they've learned as they've grown and matured that if they're going to have a wonderful relationship with their dad, they might want to stay on track, stay in their lane when it comes to what is Christianity and what's more an outpouring of. It. It's been amazing to see them grow. And, and, and now it really is one big semi-happy family uh, as, as we are here now in, the, uh, in this day. See, here's my point. It took the boys 30 years to get there. <laughs> and there were plenty of times that they had conflict Uh, over issues that you would say, well, that wasn't directly about Jesus, but here's the deal, it was a result of Jesus. And again, maybe sometimes they were right, maybe sometimes they were wrong, but it was conflict nonetheless. And I find that even today, many of us have conflict over our fallen following of Jesus. So what do we do with all this? What do we do when we have conflict over Jesus, whether it's his claims or actions or the changes that he has made in our lives or even our muddled following of him? What do we do? In the very few minutes we have remaining, I want to suggest to you three things. Three things that, by the way, I'm going to show you that Jesus was all about in his dealings with people when they had conflict over him and that things, Christians down through the ages, three things that they have done that have helped them navigate the waters of conflict when it's about Jesus. And the overall principle or approach is that we need to speak the truth in love. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We need to speak the truth in love. But what does that mean? I want to suggest to you three things. I'm going to give them to you all up front here so those who take notes can write them all down. And that is that we posit truth, we practice patience, and we pursue perseverance. What do we do when the conflict is over Jesus for a myriad of reasons? We posit truth we practice patience, and we pursue perseverance with those around us. At first, we posit truth. I think this is one of the key things we learn in this account before us here in Mark chapter 2. You know what's interesting? Most commentators point out is that Jesus clearly and creatively stayed in his lane on truth and continued to bring the truth of the gospel before these Pharisees and even John the Baptist followers that were all bent out of shape and having conflict with him. I mean, I don't know if you caught it, it's just a few verses here, but he uses one analogy, the wedding, and two parables, all in just a few verses, the parable of the shrunken cloth and the parable of the wineskin. And you know, today, we live in a world and culture that is so confused about truth. And I think we need more Christians who aren't afraid to posit truth in creative ways. Tell stories to people. Share your experiences with them. You know, a lot of people do better with truth when it's rooted in your experience rather than you just citing a Bible verse to them. Have you ever noticed that? That when you share with them, hey, let me tell you what God did recently in my life. Let me tell you what I experienced recently. I mean, they can argue with the Bible verse. It's harder for them to argue with your experience. And Jesus was really good at sharing with people his experience with the Father and stories that pointed to his relationship with the Father as well as the gospel. And you and I need to not be afraid to do that. Years ago, when I was an associate pastor in my first church in in Detroit, Michigan, uh, we developed an evangelism class, and the senior pastor declared that this evangelism class, how to share your faith with those around you, was going to be called, now get this, Sharing Life. And I said, well, that's kind of a stupid title. I mean, what, Sharing Life? And he said, no, it's a great title. He says, because all evangelism is, is sharing your life, In Jesus with those around you. And it should be natural and organic, and we posit truth wrapped up in who we are in Christ. And you know what? I believe he was right and is right. As you do this then, as you share truth with those around you, I would encourage you to practice patience. You know who teaches us this? It's kind of amazing. Peter, who we don't see, it It was one of uh, Jesus' followers, even here in the Gospel of Mark, was very boisterous and impulsive, and yet as he grew and as God used him to write a portion of the New Testament, listen to what he would eventually say in his first epistle. This is very amazing. He says, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, posit truth. Now listen, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, I think that that's part of the missing ingredient sometimes when you and I have conflict about Jesus with us. We get defensive. That's where that fallen following comes in. We get defensive. We get kind of in combat mode, and we we kind of come at them. And and God says, hey, by the way, when that happens, a kind answer turns away wrath, Proverbs chapter 15. And and I think we need to apply that more often. I'm obviously an extroverted personality. I can get excited about things, as many of you know. Uh, But I got to tell you, probably, hopefully more often than not, when somebody's in my face and somebody's really threatened... I try to do what I try to get just gentle and kind because I realize that if I match threatened with threatened, it's not going to end well. And 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 so I really try to practice gentleness. Jesus did this all the time. I I, I mean, when Jesus had conflict, he was confronting people with things. Think about it: with the woman at the well who'd been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor, what did Jesus do with her? He 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 asked her patiently. Read about it. Asked her John chapter four. He asked her a bunch of questions. Or how about when Zacchaeus was up a tree, Jesus calmly called him down. Or how about when the disciples failed to heal? Remember that scenario? What did Jesus do? He taught them about prayer and fasting. Or how about when Peter denied him, showed his absolute unfaithfulness, Jesus gently restored him again with questions about love and following. Uh, One of the things that Jesus shows us is that when a world around you has conflict that's about Jesus, posit truth but practice regularly patience. Some of us just need to do that, and that will be a game changer this week. And then as you're doing this, what ties us all together is a third response that we have when speaking the truth in love, and that is to pursue perseverance. You know, here's one of the things that amazes me about conflict and humanity, and most of you already know this, but you'll see where I'm going with this. Isn't it true that when most of us have conflict, we want to run? Isn't that true? I'm that way. I mean, I'm tired. I'm getting older. And when I have conflict with people, man, I just want to get out of the ring. I just want to watch NCAS. I just want you to leave me alone. <laughs> and, and, and yet, that's what people are going to do with you. When they have conflict, you've earned over Jesus. They're just going to not want to be with you anymore. They're just going to run, if you will, from you. Christians don't do that. Christians are one of the few people groups on planet Earth that are taught to persevere with others through thick and thin. Amen? We do. When Jesus was on the cross, do you remember what he said about those who put him on the cross, those who who basically nailed him to the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even to the cross, Jesus hung in there with everyone, and that's the nature of God. I love how Mark Twain said it years ago. He always had such a witty way of saying things. He said, always do right. This will gratify some people and astound the rest. And perseverance, hanging in there with people through thick and thin, is always right. And I'm telling you, there are people that I've had conflict with over Jesus now after 30 years, and I'm hanging in there with them still. And I think God honors that. And so maybe there's somebody in your life right now that you've kind of gotten distant from and conflict over Jesus. Maybe what God is saying to you today is move a little bit closer again. Don't, don't be afraid to enter back into the tunnel of chaos because God is in that tunnel, and he honors us when we pursue perseverance. I I wish I could tell you here this morning that you can escape conflict in your life, can't do that, or even conflict over Jesus, you can't do that, but you can respond with positing truth, practicing patience, and pursuing perseverance. Jesus did, and God is in that. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the teachings of Jesus, the modeling of Jesus that as our Savior and as our Lord, as the one who's delivered us from a Christless eternity, he also teaches us, Lord, now how to live life this side of heaven. And God, I, pray, I thank you that he shows us even here that when the conflict is over him, that we can do some things to respond in a way that just might see you show up in profound ways. And so I pray, Father, that as we are the kind of people that continue to be men and women of truth and not afraid to talk about truth, and the gospel, as we are men and women who are recognize that love is patient, love is kind, it's not envy, it does not boast, but is humble in nature, and that as we are men and women who stay in the ring with those around us through thick and thin and love them, uh, Lord, even when times get tough, that God, you would use that to help us navigate the waters of conflict. Lord, there's some of us here today that are right in the thick of it. May we be encouraged by your truth and your words today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.